Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. Joining me now, we have a guest to talk about the 48th annual Douglas R. Moore Faculty Research Lecture here at Minnesota State University. Faculty member, Dr. Philip Larson, who is with the MSU Department of Geography, which is a part of the Minnesota State Mankato College of Social and Behavioral Sciences, was the one selected for this prestigious lectureship. Good morning, Dr. Larson. Good morning. So you had the honor of presenting at this year's more lectureship, which is, is it's a celebrates the research here at Minnesota State. Let's talk a little bit about your research. It has to do with rivers, which is appropriate being that we live in the Minnesota River Valley. Yeah, yeah. And uh, part of what I'm going to present is actually talking about the Minnesota River Valley and the work that's ongoing there and how it's connected to a broader theme of research that's really defined the last 12 years or so of my, my sort of academic career. And, uh, you know, I'm going to throw out some stuff about the things that I've been doing in Mankato with students and particularly students from the Geography MS program and the Earth Science Bachelors of Science program to really unravel how the Minnesota River Valley got to be the way it is today, what we see in this landscape and how it got there, but also some of the implications of, of that story, including things like landslide hazards and ravine growth and issues like that that uh, local communities are are quite concerned with today. So, yeah, a lot of that's going to be presented, but the main thrust of the work is actually linking that sort of stuff to research that I've been doing in uh, the Phoenix metropolitan area in central Arizona for the last 12 or so years, uh, where there's a similar story that I'm trying to tell about how rivers evolve and, and are essentially born in the landscape, in a landscape that didn't have a river before. Dr. Larson, would you give a little background? How did you come to study specifically rivers and do research on this? Where'd you come from? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in Prescott, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Prescott is actually a river town. It's on the confluence of the St. Croix and Mississippi rivers. And for much of my childhood, the river was really part of life. And it was part of that community. It still is today. And so you know, I've always had this sort of passion for the beauty of rivers and their valleys. And when I went to college, I started learning that you could understand these rivers. And what really sort of changed my perception of rivers was learning that, you know, this this feature in the landscape, this river and its valley, actually wasn't as permanent as I always thought it was. And, And through the vast temporal scales of geologic time, I learned that the rivers are actually impermanent things and that they can actually be born into a landscape, they can evolve in that landscape, and they can cease to be over those time scales. So trying to understand how these beautiful landscapes actually come to be and the implications of that is really the main crux of the work. Of course, the main one we think of when we're in Minnesota is Mississippi, and the headwaters originate way up north, and I think it's Itasca County. So could you tickle yeah. a little bit about that and how how did that get there? Has it always been there? Has it always been the headwaters where this water comes from? Yeah, so there is a, a, a paper I'm going to highlight by a colleague of mine at the University of Minnesota. It's not, not my work, but it's tied, and he's a very, very close colleague that actually sort of shows a similar story that I'm starting to unravel in, in the Southwest and the 
the River Valley and in other places that I'm working, where you had the Mississippi River going a different direction about 2.6 million years ago. It's actually flowing to the northeast, or at least oh. the, hmm. the drainages in this part of the world were going in that direction. But about 2.5 million years ago or so, the river got rerouted down its current course to the south like we know it today. And this happened through a process we call overflow or spillover, where meltwater pooled in front of a glacier and essentially spilled over a divide and basically rerouted the entire drainage network to the south. And this is the same sort of theme that uh, I'm going to be talking about in rivers in the southwest United States, but also how the Minnesota River Valley formed as well. Now, over the years, I... You're talking, you were talking way back, two point some million years ago, but over the years, right. man has become more settled on riverbanks in terms of people wanting to build homes on their uh, businesses, et cetera. And so they, they put in floodplains, they put in or dams and things like that. How is that impacting what we're seeing in terms of a river's natural evolution? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a complicated question, but I, I think how it ties to what I'm doing and, and some of the work I'm doing today is that if you imagine a landscape that literally did not have a river in it, and then suddenly a river is born into that landscape, and that could be 2.6 million years ago, it could be 13,000 years ago, like in the case of the Minnesota River Valley, this is a dramatic impact on this landscape. And what it does is it transforms the erosional processes that shape this landscape. Um, Basically, it amps it all up because you're creating significant relief by creating these river valleys, and that significant relief can cause all sorts of erosional hazards and that sort of stuff. And so what we're seeing today in places like the Minnesota River Valley um, are landslide hazards and ravine growth and those sorts of things that people living in in communities within the Minnesota Valley uh, have to pay attention to. Uh, It's becoming much more apparent in recent years because we're seeing a lot of it. And that's sort of what I'm trying to point to is that, you know, we don't just look at the landslide as something as its own entity. We have to understand the whole picture of why this is happening. And so that's what I'm going to try to present during the the Douglas Moore lecture and show the community what's going on in their own backyard. Does climate change have any impact on this? I'm thinking with the sudden heavy rains and things we've been experiencing over the more recent years. Yeah, so... (laughs) And and, in, and that question can be answered in many different <laughs> scales, too. So we can think of natural climate change. So a lot of us are familiar with sort of anthropogenic force climate change that we think is going on today. But there's also a natural climate change impact. So when we're talking about what's going on with the uh, Minnesota River or the Mississippi River, what we're talking about in these instances are directly tied to ice ages, these large lakes that are spilling over and creating these river valleys are tied to the melting of glacial ice. And so that would require a very different climate than we see today. On top of that, we can look at the modern uh, climatic change and see how it is sort of enhancing processes that would already be in motion from sort of this birth of the river, this natural process creating these rivers. And so we have erosional processes that are sort of like getting a shot of steroids by increased magnitude precipitation events and things like that that we've observed in the last few years as we've studied landslides and things um, in the Minnesota Valley. You mentioned earlier, you're talking about specifically the birth of rivers and their valleys. I've never, ever (laughs) thought of a river being born. So expound on that. What does that exactly mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and this is the point I'm trying to, to make, too. And I think it's a really cool part of this story. And it's something that you know, growing up where I did, I, I never 
thought any differently, that the, the river was always there and it mm-hmm. always was going to be. And I had heard from my parents and friends and family, you know, stories about fishing on the river and swimming in the river and it had been there for generations, right? But, you know, and then we think back like thousands of years in human history, cultural revolutions and societies, growth and sort of major cities across the planet being sort of cemented along the courses of rivers. And so we think about it from a human time scale, a human perception that the river is sort of permanent. But mm-hmm. in reality, uh, when we look through geologic time, it's sort of like geology can kind of shake the etch-a-sketch clean. <laughs> and we can get a landscape that doesn't have a river in it. And then suddenly we can transform that landscape by connecting the hydrology from outside that landscape through that landscape. And so this is what we mean by a, a birth of a river. And a, a great example of that is the Minnesota River Valley. 15,000 years ago, glacial ice covered all of what is now the Minnesota River Valley. And that ice melted away. And about 13,500 years ago, a major outpouring of meltwater from something called Glacial Lake Agassiz spilled through this landscape, carving the Minnesota River Valley as we know it and creating the Minnesota River. So this sudden event in geologic time bursts that river into a new landscape. And understanding how that happens, how that process unfolds, and what we should see in the landscape and understanding how it sort of transforms everything, (laughs) a very, very dynamic process, that's really what the focus of my work is really tied to. Uh, another great example of that is like the Grand Canyon. Everybody has seen pictures of Grand Canyon of the Colorado River. As of five and a half million years ago, the Grand Canyon didn't exist. And it suddenly appeared in the landscape. And so understanding how that happened, how that birth of the Colorado River and a fantastic landscape like Grand Canyon is sort of the subject of, of this work. Now you say suddenly. I mean, you're not talking it happened overnight, are you? No. Okay. No, but in geologic times when we're talking oh. about <laughs> Earth's history, we're talking, you know, four and a half billion years, right? And so when we have something that happens in a few hundred or a few thousand years, uh, it happens essentially overnight in terms of geology. So it's right? all perspective. <laughs> yes, it, right, exactly. And that's, that's sort of the thing I start to talk about is that I'm really trying to paint that picture for the audience by saying from a human perspective, we think of, you know, a hundred years as a long lifetime, mm-hmm. Right. But when we're thinking about river systems and how they transform landscapes, we're talking thousands to millions of years, right? And so it's a different sort of perspective that I'm going to try to tell everybody to think about. But it helps everybody then be able to see the landscape for what it is and really, I hope, appreciate how these beautiful places came to be. So how do you do this? I mean, are you actually out there physically <laughs> looking at rivers? I mean, I you know I know you mentioned that you're doing research down in Arizona. Arizona, yeah. yeah. So are you actually physically out there doing things or is it archives yeah. or what do you how do you do this? Yeah, so we go out to these landscapes and we look for well let me start this over. So we <laughs> I'm a geomorphologist and what mm-hmm. geomorphologists do is they study uh, landforms and deposits on the earth's surface that tell us about the history of those processes and how those processes unfold. Really what we're studying is is erosion, how things change and transform the landscapes we see. And so what we do is we go out into the field and we actually look for important sort of landforms and deposits that can help us sort of like jigsaw puzzle pieces to slowly piece together the story so that we start to get the full picture of the jigsaw puzzle. And so one of the classic landforms that we look at is something called a stream terrace. And a stream terrace is a former floodplain of the river. Like you go up in the Minnesota River Valley today 
and you'd see the Minnesota River floating through the valley bottom, and you'd see this flat-lying land on either side of the river. That's its floodplain. Mm -hmm. But imagine if something causes that river to get suddenly more erosive. It would cut down and abandon that floodplain higher than the modern river, and it would leave behind this landform we call a stream terrace. So you can use these stream terraces to reconstruct how the river has changed through time. And you can date the sediments within it to figure out when that happened and how fast that happened. So that's the sort of stuff we're doing is we're out in the field, mapping things out, dating things, describing things, and essentially really trying to connect uh, all these landforms and deposits both, uh, across both space and time to really understand these stories. Dr. Larson, why is it important that we study this specifically? Well, just, I mean, there's a couple of different reasons in my mind, but the first is just, you know, appreciating the beauty that we see around us and really appreciating the natural world. I think that's something Minnesotans in general are really good at. We te- seem to care a lot about our, our outdoors and our, our natural world. But the second major part of this is that, you know, when these rivers are born, uh, it tends to create very dynamic relief, very large relief change. These big river valleys like we see here in the Minnesota Valley with big, steep valley walls. And what that relief does is essentially sets up potential energy in the landscape, that those slopes start to move. So we get landslides, we get erosional processes that can cause infrastructure damage. It can potentially kill people if they're on a road and one of these landslides occurs. And so understanding how this landscape came to be helps us understand why these sort of processes on these hill slopes exist, why these erosional processes are going on. And helps us really sort of get at things like you were asking earlier. If, if anthropogenic climate change is having a major impact on things like landslides, we need to understand what the natural background processes are doing first as a baseline. Otherwise, we can't truly understand the magnitude of modern change. So those are the kind of things that I, I care about when I'm doing this work and what I talk to people about. Uh, there's also one last major component that we haven't really gotten into yet, uh, but it's coming in our work. These landslides and things are also supplying sediment to the rivers. Mm. So the river is then eroding out these, you know, failures on the hill slopes. And that sediment can actually impair the water quality. One of the major issues in the Minnesota River from Mankato down to the confluence of the Mississippi is turbidity. Basically, the water gets very cloudy and it can have devastating impacts on biodiversity and ecosystems in, in the river itself. And so understanding where that sediment is coming from is really important. So all of this is sort of linked together, like much of the natural world really is. And so understanding all of these components helps us really fully address these environmental problems in our own backyard. Is there something we can do to help with these, as you mentioned, environmental issues? And of course, we've been talking about the polluted Minnesota River for for years. And so are there things we can do as individuals or groups or whoever? Well, I mean, uh, there's a couple of things that, you know, concern me. One, it's the water quality. Two, is just the hazards of these landslides and things mm-hmm. themselves that we need to be aware of. So I think first, the main thing is just this sort of thing, talking about it, getting the awareness out there so that people understand that these problems are actually there. And that's the first major step we need in order to, you know, uh, obtain sort of funds to actually go out there and try to understand and think about mitigation strategies. In terms of stopping this sort of thing, or or at least mitigating some of this. Uh, There's lots of people that are working on various strategies for this. Right now, I'm hesitant to answer how we go about doing it, because (laughs) it's a very complicated problem and a very large problem. And I don't think we fully understand all the different aspects of 
this complicated landscape yet. But I'm hoping with continuing this work, uh, both my own work with students, but also with colleagues across the state of Minnesota, we'll get a lot closer to really being able to give answers to the community about what's going on out here. Your research has a particular focus on the major rivers of the southwestern United States. We've been talking about, of course, Mississippi area. Why the southwestern United States? Mainly because there was a, what I would call a paradigm in, in the earth sciences about how rivers are born into landscapes that had really been pervasive and sort of entrenched in how people thought. And the more I kind of dug into it, the more confused I got because it didn't quite make sense. And, and then modern research sort of started pointing us at the problems with this entrenched paradigm. And so, you know, one of the places that sort of is full of potential, sort of a, like a natural laboratory to try to understand how a river might be born is the southwestern United States. And this has to do with sort of the geologic evolution of how the Southwest formed. And so when you go to a place like Phoenix, you see a landscape littered with mountains and then basins in between those mountains. And they call this the basin and range. And essentially those basins are like big bathtubs and the mountains are essentially like the rim of your bathtub. And in some point in the geologic past, rivers were actually able to cross through mountain ranges and, and connect those bathtubs together to create what we call through-flowing river systems. Mm. And so understanding the process of how those bathtubs connected, those basins in Arizona, really is a fundamentally cool test of, this, of these ideas of like what is actually doing this. And so we can go out there and we can look at the landforms, we can date the landforms, we can core into the deposits, and we can date those deposits, and we can try to connect the dots, make the jigsaw puzzle come together. And that's kind of what we did. I did my master's and PhD at Arizona State and really triggered a lot of these ideas, a lot of this thinking about how these river systems evolve out there. And I had some great mentors who were already thinking about some of this when I showed up. And so it just kept going. <laughs> so for about 12 years, we focused on this. And it resulted in this last year, a special issue in the Journal of Geomorphology being published that really culminated in what we understood about the Salt River uh, of Arizona in particular. But it also had articles in it about how the Grand Canyon formed, about how the Gila River, a major river system out there formed, really pointing at the processes that allow rivers to be born in a landscape. You know, often when I think about the Southwest, I think of desert and not mm -hmm. a lot of water and, and rivers and things drying up. Is that part of your research, too, in, in finding out why this is happening? Yeah, I think... In some ways, yes. So one of the important things that came out of our work was understanding sort of the deposits, the sediments that were being carried through the landscape and deposited in these, these bathtubs or these basins as a result of these drainages, these rivers forming in these landscapes really became important when we realized that the, the, the gravels that showed up when the river suddenly arrived into the landscape actually are the groundwater aquifer for the city of Phoenix, Arizona, the third largest water supply for that city. And as we talk about and think about climate change in the Southwest, we realize that the Colorado River water supplies and surface water is starting to dry up. Mm -hmm. Reservoirs are sort of at lower levels than they've been in a long, long time. There's worry about water supply issues from the Colorado River, including going to Phoenix, Arizona. And so one of the resources that's still there is the groundwater. And that groundwater aquifer would not have been there if not for the birth of the Salt River through this area, depositing those gravels and beneath our feet in these basins 
uh, where the water could be stored underneath our feet. And so there's some very important implications, again, to understanding these rivers being born in these landscapes that go on beyond just sort of the nerdy science of (laughs) rivers and rocks. Is there a possibility that the Mississippi, let's say, could face similar fate that we're seeing in the southwestern part of the the nation? Um, (laughs) That's a hard question to answer. Uh, The southwest clearly is volatile with modern climate change. Um, Climate change impacts on what's going on in the Mississippi Basin is still not greatly understood. And so I think we're, we're starting to piece puzzle pieces together with that, too. But it's going to be, in my opinion, a little while before we really have a grasp on the full impact of what climate change is doing to uh, the river systems in the upper Midwest. Is that being studied very much? In some places and in some aspects, yeah, but not sort of a, a broader holistic thing that I'm aware of, you know, trying to look at water resource issues like in the same light as we are in the Southwest, mainly because in the upper Midwest, I mean, we don't seem to have such water shortage crisis potential like we have in the Southwest, where we have the Colorado River really responsible for about 40 million people, right? And and that river is, in, in all intents and purposes, drying up. So we don't quite see a similar thing with the Mississippi right now. More importantly, our conversations about these water quality issues, I think, mm. than climate change right now. But that doesn't mean it's not worth, you know, studying into the future. You know, sure. it kind of sounds scary, actually. You say, well, it's not yet, because it could be down the line, which is why I was wondering why more people aren't studying this and hopefully preventing similar situations. But is, is that just because it's we're talking millions of years away? Well, I don't think it's millions of years away. I just I think the the potential for the same sort of catastrophic consequences like we see in the southwest because we're in a desert and water is already scarce out there. The upper Midwest, there's a lot of water. <laughs> and yeah, last summer we had some pretty bad droughts. And if those sort of things continue, we might have some some issues. But, uh, you know, what we tend to see in the trends is actually that precipitation levels are increasing and uh, we're getting higher magnitude precipitation events more than we are seeing, you know, massive droughts in this part of the world. So I just think that it's not sort of, you know, the the critical, maybe potentially dangerous or catastrophic situation that might be going on in the southwest here in the next couple of decades. What are some of the other questions you are looking to answer in terms of continuing your research? Yeah, uh, I, I've sort of shifted focus from uh, the Southwest to this part of the world, which kind of makes sense. I mean, I grew up here, but I'm also working here now, and uh, my students are mostly from here, and so all of them are very interested in this place. And what's neat about it is connecting sort of the same theory, the processes that generate rivers and how they evolve to what we're seeing here, and it's a very similar story in many cases. And so. A lot of the work we're doing today, we have graduate students currently working in the Minnesota River Valley. We have graduate students and undergraduate students working in the St. Croix River Valley. And we have a potential uh, new project starting in the Lake Superior Basin. We submitted a colleague of mine from the University of Minnesota and other colleagues from across the country uh, submitted a National Science Foundation proposal to work on the Lake Superior Basin. And hopefully we get that funded to help us understand both the lake and the rivers that flow out of it and into it. So I think there's a lot of cool potential for future work. So maybe everybody just wants to stay tuned if they're interested in rivers. Well, I think it sounds fascinating. We have been chatting with Philip Larson. He is a professor at Minnesota State University Mankato's Department of Geography, and he is the presenter of How Rivers Are Born and Evolve Again, a paradigm shift in earth science that is a part of the 
48th annual Douglas R. Moore faculty research lecture that occurred on Monday here at Minnesota State. And that's an honor. Congratulations to you. And I do hope you keep us informed on what research you have and, and especially the work you're doing here in southern Minnesota. I absolutely will. Thank you very much. Any other things you want to add that we might not have discussed you think that's important for people to know? No, I would just say that if anybody is interested or curious about any of this, I'm open to emails and, you know, conversating with anybody from the general public or the university community. I just think this stuff is also fascinating, mm -hmm. so I, I like to talk about it. So if anybody would like to know more, I'm happy to do that. Is there a website people can go to to find more information about your research? <laughs> we are starting to build them. Okay. Uh, so a colleague of mine from the University of Minnesota, Dr. Andrew Wickard in Earth and Environmental Sciences, and myself have built a research collaboration called Minimorph. And so you can go to minimorph.science, M-N-I-M-O-R-P-H.science, mm -hmm. to see our collaborative group website uh, that really pertains to a lot of the work that's going on. Keep in mind that the work on that website is just literally like a week ago we started okay. putting it together. So, so it's fresh. we're, we're going to have it finalized up in a couple of weeks here, but, but it's a good start to really see what we're doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.